You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Southport as a counsellor for about the last 17 years there and I've moved my speciality now in counselling is relationship counselling uh, so hence when I do a message, message it's usually relationship focused so uh, uh, that's a message I was preparing for next week so I thought I would share uh, with, with you on that because it's very interesting but it's not just for people who are in a relationship it applies very well to everyone. Uh, so I was just through the week. I, I I grew I grew up as a kid with a uh, with a phobia of needles. Who who doesn't like needles? Who kind of really struggles with the whole <laughs> good? So I'm all right now. I'm all right now. But I grew up seriously. If I knew I was going to have to have an injection, I would be thinking about it for days, possibly weeks, and really struggling with it. And my son, I'm married, I've been married for 24 years to Alison, and uh, we've got one son, and uh, his name's Jake, and he's 11, and it appears he's got a bit of my needle phobia. And uh, so what I've been trying to do is a thing with him called systematic desensitisation, which means (laughs) have needles, (laughs) and then you'll, you'll get used to it, and it won't bother you anymore eventually. That's what you do with most phobias, actually, is to not run away. When you've got a phobia, of something, to avoid it tends to make it worse, but to systematically and gradually desensitise to a phobia uh, tends to relieve it and make it less. And that's what's happened with me with needles, where I can go now and it's fine. So I've taken my son to watch me have a blood test. Last year I took him for a flu vaccination to uh, just to start to get him used to needles, and it was quite a, a traumatic experience. And uh, he, when he was about to get the injection, the in- I had one too at the same time, and it was really stung. It was a bad one. And I think because I think because we made the uh, nurse nervous because my son was uh, getting a little bit frantic, and I kind of had to hold him uh, as it happened. So last year that happened. I said, sweetheart, this year we need to go and do the uh, flu vaccination again. Not just because it's a good thing, but uh, to desensitise you to needles. And so he said, yeah, okay. And he was nervous. We went there. We had to wait quite a while in the in the medical centre that we went to, unfortunately. So I let him play a game on the phone um, and so he's sitting there trying to distract his mind we went in sat on chairs um, she said who, who wants to go first and I said would you, do you want to go first he said no you can dad uh, so I had mine and it really didn't hurt at all last year's one stung this one didn't feel much which was good so I could say oh is that done I could hardly feel it and so my son we were talking about it how do you manage this just be brave no panicking you know things, there are things, some things in life that are difficult that you just need to do and it's good to be able to do it because it'll be good for you and so he sat there and he was so brave and uh, as she was about to do it I could see him getting worked up and he said dad dad can you can you hold my hand and uh, I, I held his hand and he had it and it wasn't too bad and he was fine but the 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 dad can you hold my hand thing just touches my heart when my boy wants me needs me to hold his hand and keep him safe I seriously I love that more than just about anything wonderful beautiful that my boy needs me and he's a big boy he's a strong boy and uh you know he's not afraid of too many things and so I don't sort of hear that from him too often this whole thing of of attachment of a of a child needing their parent attachment there are there are researchers now who study uh studying human behavior and why do we why do we get so attached and uh they see they they've found that uh children um 
the, the, the kind of quality of attachment that children have to their parent when they're infants tends to affect how they do life later on and how they do relationships later on. If there's an insecure attachment, a person can become a bit of an insecure, more neurotic type of personality. And so if there was a secure attachment where a child felt kind of close and connected and safe, that, that person will tend to be a little bit more emotionally stable in later relationships. This is what researchers are finding. And just in the last, say, 15 years, they're, they're studying um, adult attachment and what they're what they're saying now is that adults need attachment in intimate relationships and how significant that is the attachment uh, that people need um, in an intimate relationship and so what they've found is as they study people they put a brain scan on people and uh, what they have found is that um, uh, they, they'll, they'll put a brain scan on people and there's an X will come up on the screen and if the X comes up, there's a 40% chance that you might get an electric shock on your ankle. And so what they've done is they've put the brain scan on people and looked for the uh, fear signal in the brain and those particular areas light up. And um, when a person was laying in the brain scan and the X come up on the screen and there was no one there with them, it would light up quite a lot. The fear response would be quite strong. When a stranger held their hand, there was a very similar fear response. But when someone um, attached to them, a, a marital partner or someone in a, in a close relationship with them held their hand, the fear response was heaps lower, which is fascinating. And what they're saying is people need attachment. And, you know, this points back to the whole, the whole genesis thing of God uh, creating man and woman. And the first thing he does is create a marriage relationship. And so this need for human attachment is quite significant. And uh, what they've found is that uh, because relationships have been struggling so much uh, in, the, you know, in, past, in current and past generations... They've found that uh, people are becoming very, very lonely because of the real disconnection and lack of attachment. In fact, what they've found is that a quarter of people in America say that, say that they, in the USA say that they have no significant person that they can confide in. A quarter of all people say, I don't have anyone that I can even confide in. Which is amazing because, and, and it points to God creating us for connection and for relationship. And you just see it, and it points back to this, back to Genesis when God created us, that he created us to be connected. And I know talking to any audience, there are people in all sorts of situations. There are people who are um, in good relationships now, people who are in relationships that are struggling, people who are in broken relationships. My mum and dad got divorced when I was 12, so I went through all the uh, turmoil of that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing. It's a really difficult thing. But people really desire to be connected. I was watching, I like watching on TV, you know, different kind of shows about relationships. Silly reality television shows. There's a, there's a dating show called, there's a thing called First Dates where uh, people uh, meet up in a restaurant and they film them for the first date. And you know if you've been on a first date how nerve-wracking uh, that is. It's interesting, me as a relationship counsellor, I like watching uh, people's reactions. There was that very silly show on recently called Married at First Sight. Just put your hand up if you watch that one right through no one no, no. <laughs> a couple of people my wife 
my wife was watching that while she was doing the ironing. I watched some of it at the beginning because it's like, oh, I can't stand this anymore. But I, I have this interest in human behaviour. And what I noticed at the beginning, when they're interviewing couples who are, are coming on to the show, some people who are younger, some who are older, but everyone's saying, I just want that one special person. I just want to find, you know, they call it their soulmate. I just want that person uh, who I can be connected with, who I can do life with. You know, and that is in the heart of most people. Not everyone, but that tends to be in the heart of so many people. That people want this secure attachment. People want to be connected to someone for life. But the sad thing is, what, it's so difficult to make it work. Why is it so hard? For it to work it's just so difficult and you know there's so much pressure when we're talking about marriage relationships there's just so much pressure on marriage relationships these days in fact i think there's more pressure on a marriage relationship these days than there has ever been because people are more disconnected you know in history people would grow up in a in a place where they didn't just rely on their marriage partner to get their emotional and practical needs met. It would tend to be the kind of the village concept where people would uh, have some of those needs that wasn't met in the marriage met by other people who were close by. Because we live in a disconnected culture, um, people aren't getting those needs met outside of their marriage. So all of their expectations turn inward to the marriage partner. So now you need to meet all of my needs, my practical needs, my romantic needs. You need to meet them. And if you don't, then there's trouble. And another thing that has affected us as a culture is an ideology that developed in the 1700s, the late 1700s, an ideology that changed the way people thought about relationships. And this thinking came from Europe, it came from poets and writers, and it's called romanticism. And when people started to think more about relationships and marriage less practically, whereas in the past people would think very practically um, because it was more about survival. They would think practically, like someone had a sheep, someone had a goat, and uh, if we can exchange these and you've got a plot of land there, my family's got this. Very practical kind of arrangement. It tended to be more of that. But ro as people got wealthier, romanticism started to come into play and uh, lots of stories and poems about romantic love and people's thinking started be to become much more, um, it's all about love and it's all about a feeling. It's not really about any practical things because love will conquer all. And if we can just find the soulmate, then it will be good because love will fix everything. Don't need to think too much about practical things. When I'm doing pre-marriage counselling with couples, I see, I see some of this thinking. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, guys, you need to think a little bit more practically about this because if you don't get the practical things in place, the feelings won't last. And in fact, what they say is uh, that, you, you know, that intoxication you have in a, with a new relationship, and most people can remember that, how you're just giddy with love, you can't think clearly. Imagine staying like that. Imagine finding a person just being completely intoxicated and uh, forgetting things and on the phone all the time. All you want to do is connect with this person and talk to them. And imagine that's not possible. I, I don't think we could cope with it. I don't think our bodies could manage it. And so we, we get about two years of that. And they call it limerence, 
where you just really feel in love. You overlook a lot of things, probably a lot of things that you maybe shouldn't overlook. People overlook stuff, uh, but maybe we wouldn't marry anyone if we uh, didn't overlook certain things because everyone is flawed in a range of different ways. Uh, but this romantic kind of notion that it's the soulmate uh, that will, uh, if I just find the soulmate, and you know, that's why so many people, when they do break up, they break up more because of a feeling than practical reality. And so that's what we're dealing with now. And so marriages are under a massive amount of pressure because what people are saying is, I'm just not in love anymore. And if I don't feel in love, then it mustn't be right. Perhaps God didn't find me the right person at the right time. I need to find my soulmate and that will solve it all. So that kind of thinking is flawed. That's not the way. There, there is a way. There is a, there is a better way. And I believe that creating the right kind of relationship today does require us learning how to create a sense of romantic love. In fact, the secular researchers have found that creating a deep friendship and a romantic connection is the thing that keeps people together, even though they all have a big list of problems and frustrations with each other. No couple who feel in love with each other break up. And so a lot of marital therapies are pointing towards trying to get people to be in love. But how do you do that? Is it a matter of just finding the right person? Or is it an issue of getting skilled in how to do that? Yes, that's what it is. It's an issue of skill. Learning to be in love takes skill. And that's part of my job, a major part of my job working in relationships, is teaching people the skills of how to create a really good friendship with the person they're married to and create a sense of romantic connection and love. And so I want to share today, I want to share from God's word because the answers are all there. When I study secular research and I look at scripture, I think, man, this stuff was all written so long ago. It's all there. All the keys of what to do are there to make a successful relationship in this current time. You just need to have a look at why Christianity changed the Roman Empire within about 300 years. Christianity started off, so, so we have Jesus... Um, teaching about the kingdom of God, coming and proclaiming the kingdom of God, the disciples following him, thinking that he was going to conquer the Romans and it would all be good. He gets arrested, crucified, they're disappointed, they think it's all over. It's all shut down, it's finished, our dreams are hopeless, it's like a marriage that ends badly. Just didn't work out, it's bad. Uh, and so what, they, what happened was that Jesus literally rose from the dead and they saw him and interacted with him for a period of time. And that changed everything. Because Jesus literally rose. This is a historical fact. And there's a historian and social scientist called Rodney Stark. And uh, I actually saw, um, I don't know if you watched the Bolt Report, on Easter Thursday, Andrew Bolt was promoting this book. He's saying, I've been reading this book about the rise of, it's called The Rise of Christianity. And this guy I don't even know if this guy's a Christian, but he was saying Christianity within 300 years, about 300 years, converted about half the massive Roman Empire to Christianity. 
And so about half the empire started to say, we believe Jesus. It's the Romans who crucified Jesus and now and persecuted the Christians and then the emperor becomes a Christian. And that's when the church got politicised. I, I don't think things were fantastic from then. But what, why did this happen? And Rodney Stark in his book is talking about the reason this kind of thing happened was because of the behaviour of the Christians, the way they treated one another, the way they treated others who weren't Christians. The pagans would run away when a plague came and people were dying. The Christians would stay and nurture them and look after them at their own expense. And Christianity, Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview has had such a massive positive impact, particularly on the Western world. Massive. There have been some unpleasant things, but primarily had such a massive positive impact. Now, Andrew Bolt on his show is saying this stuff. It's the Christians who have set up the hospitals, the universities, caring for people, all that kind of stuff. And this is the reason the followers of Jesus changed the world back then. And the reason was the night that Jesus was going to get arrested. He's with his disciples. He takes a basin and a towel and he goes around and he washes their feet. They don't understand. Why, why is he doing this? The rabbis don't do this. He goes around and he washes their feet and he says to them, I've done this for you and now I want you to do this for each other. And he goes on and he says, A new command I give you, love one another. Love one another. Incredible. And so they're like, oh, yeah, 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 sure. All good, but when are you going to conquer the Romans? That kind of thing. And so he gets arrested, crucified, and that's probably all gone out of their thinking. And then he comes back and he reaffirms what has happened and that it start, they start to absorb it. And it's like, wow, this is, what's, this is bigger than just us, Israel. This is massive. This is for the world. And he's saying, this will define you as one of my followers. I want you to come and follow me, put your faith in me that I died for your sin, rose again, and now follow me. And the thing that if the world looks on and says, what's it all about? The defining characteristic will be that you choose to love one another. That should be what defines me. If I'm a follower of Jesus, a person should say, that's his primary characteristic. Not his fantastic theology, not his insight into, into this or end times or all good stuff. I, I was a lover of theology. I read it all. But I've come to realise that theology in itself, knowledge, is what the Pharisees loved. Application is what God loves. Theology is about application. The application is to love God and love one another. And so the New Testament is basically a commentary on how to love God and how to love one another. It's fairly straightforward. And if we apply this into our, not only our marriage relationships, if you're in one or would like to be in one or would like to understand why one didn't work in the past, you can apply this to every relationship. This has to be applied. As a follower of Jesus, loving one another is what it's really all about. And that's what converted the Roman Empire. A extraordinary care. One of my favourite marriage experts, who I use his model, a Christian fellow who's written 20 books, a guy named Willard Harley, he says 
the bottom line with creating quality relationships, he says that the thing you want to aim for, which will create romantic love, is to create a relationship of extraordinary care. He says if you, if you go into marriage with that in mind, not to just get your needs met, but to go in and be choosing to care for the other person, you will create a sense of romantic love because that becomes your mission. It's always on the radar, a sense of romantic love. And so I want to share two things that Paul says of what to do. Two skills, two behaviours that if you're in a relationship or just generally, if you're not in a relationship, apply them to general life and it will work. Just two things that Paul follows on in these verses and says will make a big difference. If you apply them, they are fantastic. They will create a sense of love and connection. And the first thing he says as he goes on into verse 4, and seriously, I've been pondering on these verses for quite some time as I apply it to, to marriage relationship theory and understanding, and it's all contained here. In verses 4 to 7 in 1 Corinthians 13, seriously, if people will do this, there are behaviours to do and there are behaviours not to do. In fact, when a couple comes in for counselling, we start with the behaviours to stop doing because behaviours that are, are not so good uh, ruin the sense of connection and then we stop doing certain behaviours, we start doing new behaviours and then things start to change. It's all contained, just you read it at home, but I'm just going to share the first two things, the first two skills that Paul says. And the first one, he says, is love. And so what he, what he said in the, um, that Jewel read before, um, Paul is basically saying that love is, love is everything. You can, you, can have, you can have miraculous things going on for you. You can have prophecy. You can have massive amounts of knowledge, you know, theological knowledge, knowledge about God. You can have great faith. You make massive sacrifices. Sacrifice yourself. You can be massively generous. But if you don't have love... You don't have anything because God's all about love. It's all about love. And you might say, well, what is love? Well, Paul goes on and explains what love is and what love isn't. This is fantastic. This is stuff you need to apply immediately. And he says, well, love is. Love is, love is the priority about everything. In fact, I think it's in First or Second John that he defines God as love. He says God is literally love. God's all about love. And so the first thing he says, to do love, and if you apply this into your romantic relationship, he says, love is patient. Patient. So if you follow Jesus, he'll say to you, if you're going to be defined as my disciples, you've got to be patient. You've got to choose to be patient. We'll struggle with that in some sense. I, I struggle in car parks, being patient. When I go to a a busier car park, I'm fascinated, astonished, shocked at the way people drive in car parks. Really. Every time I go in, it's building up in me and I've got to work on it. I'm a fairly patient person, but this one gets to me because what happens is people are cutting, people are driving assuming that there will be no one else coming. So they cut the corner constantly and then we're kind of nose to nose. They're on my side and I'm thinking, it's a busy car park. Why would you drive on my... Why, why, do you, why does every third person do that? And so the, the 
I might look patient, I don't say anything, I smile, but on the inside I'm not feeling very patient and I'm working on that one. I need to just calm down, accept how it is. I'm not going to change anyone. That's how it is. If you want to, Glenn, if you want to go into a car park, that's how it is. Accept it. Patience needs to define, and it's a skill. We need to work on it. It needs to define us as followers of Jesus. And impatience, and if you're, in, if you're being married, you, we are married, you know how difficult that can be. You know it can be really difficult in, a, in an intimate relationship. It can be difficult in any, in any relationship. It can be difficult in family life. Patience is a skill. And impatience is so destructive, so damaging that you really need to stop doing it in relationships. It's, it's just so destructive. Uh, Dr. John Gottman is pretty much the world's foremost marriage researcher. So when you look in the academic literature about what, what makes relationships work, Dr. John Gottman has been studying couples scientifically for about 40 years at the University of Washington, um, studying couples, everything they do, facial expressions, what they say. Uh, they'll have them at this... Um, uh, overnight stay, you know, like bed and breakfast type thing, and they'll analyse everything. And then they'll follow them up years later. And they'll look at the differences of behaviour that couples did then as to why their relationship worked later or why their relationship didn't work later. So a very scientific analysis of what's going on. And uh, there's, a, there's a key element, which I think is all about patience, that he says uh, works for relationships. And there's an acronym that will pop up here. He's got one of, the, one of the key things that couples need to learn to do is to learn to attune to each other. Attune. They say attunement is really important in intimate relationships. People need to learn to connect with each other. And you can see on the list there uh, the things they've got, uh, things like awareness, and I'll explain the second one uh, in a minute. Um, awareness of each other, tolerance of each other, you know, which is about being patient, understanding of each other, showing understanding, you know, slowing down, uh, non-defensive responding, empathy, you know, trying to understand things from the other person's perspective. But this second one, the second T there, um, called turning towards. Turning towards um, rather than away is a concept that they found is highly significant. Um, turning towards is about paying attention to your partner. So say I come home and, um, you know, I let out a sigh and say, oh, gee, that was a hard day. My wife in that moment has the opportunity to turn towards me and say, oh, really, what happened? Or she could turn away and just ignore me because she's busy in the kitchen. It's, that kind, it's those small things the researchers say are the significant things. It's listening and just paying attention to the other person. And what they found is that a regular, the couples who they studied and then they followed them up six years later, the couples who were still together and doing well in their marriage turned towards each other 86% of the time, six years earlier, that was their pattern, turning towards 86% of the time. Those who were broken up or unhappy were only turned towards about 33% of the time. Turning towards takes patience. It takes slowing down. Patience is about gearing down going at the pace of the other person. If your partner says, I'm struggling with something and you're disinterested because you're too busy, that's going to hurt your relationship. And you can see how this grows romantic love. This kind of connecting and paying attention, it takes patience, this is what followers of Jesus do, 
takes patience and it takes skill. And if you do it, it will grow a sense of connection and love. It's like dealing with conflict in relationships. What does Dr. John Gottman say is the key to dealing with conflict in relationships? Well, I teach couple, couples a range of skills, but fundamentally, it's about learning to be more gentle. When you're discussing a conflict, learning to be more gentle. And that could be the case with anyone, a family member who you don't get on with a neighbour. When there's a conflict, be more gentle. And that's what Gottman says works. That's about patience. This is key characteristic of being a follower of Jesus. Making life so much better through the skill of patience and creating romantic connection. Just being mindful of that, that it's, that it's needed. And this is how Christianity changed the world. These kind of behaviours, because this is what love is. That's patience. So that's the first thing Paul says. And just the second one. So there are two things to remember today. Um, the next slide, love is kind. Paul says love is patient. You deliberately choose it. It's not just a feeling. It doesn't just happen by itself. You choose it, whether you feel like it or not. And love is kind. Followers of Jesus choose to be kind, sometimes at their own expense. There are two types of people in our lives that have a big impact on us. People who have hurt us, particularly from our childhood, we remember it and the scars are often deep, and people who have been kind to us. Those people tend to impact us the most. Those who hurt us and those who have been kind to us. I can remember back in school, I don't think I was the easiest kid to have in class. I was a bit mischievous. But I remember my grade five teacher. She was very kind to me, patient, fun. And my history teacher in high school, kind, unnecessarily kind. And that kindness made me a different person. That brought out the best in me. When someone treated me with kindness, they, they just brought out the better part of me, which is fantastic. Imagine applying that into romantic relationships, that sense of kindness. It's so important. I was re reading a book. The, probably the um, person that's had the biggest impact on me in my life would be Ravi Zacharias, if you've heard of him. Uh, I got to meet him about 12 years ago, a Christian apologist, and, you know, that was a thrill for me because I've, I've listened to him for years and years, and he's a Christian apologist, travels the world, has massive, massive impact for Jesus. And uh, I remember reading Ravi's book on relationships, and something really struck me as I was reading his book on relationships. And he said, there is never a reason to speak unkindly to anyone, even if you disagree with them. There's never a reason to speak unkindly. And that struck me because I know in my marriage I've spoken unkindly lots of times, much less now because I'm learning. I'm far from perfect. If my wife was here, she could tell you that. <laughs> but I'm learning and to not speak unkindly makes you feel better about yourself. And you can actually then resolve conflict. Because when we speak unkindly, the other person can no longer hear us. So it's pointless. And this is what I get couples to do, is to slow down, be more patient, and be more kind. 
and then you might solve problems. And it doesn't mean there are not hard conversations. It doesn't mean there aren't situations that you have to get yourself away from. There are. There are abusive situations. This is not like a passive just let someone abuse us at all. But we need to be patient. We need to be kind. One of John Gottman's concepts, John Gottman has seven key principles that they've found in their research that make relationships work. And uh, his second key principle that they've found says if people do these, they'll have successful relationships. And he says it's to build an environment of fondness and admiration. To build an environment of fondness and admiration. And what they've found is when couples talking about conflict, couples who tend to do well, when they're discussing conflict, they make five positive remarks to every one negative remark. They're able to even show kindness in conflict. Couples who ended up divorcing in their research made about one positive to one negative. So even equal balance of positive to negative is not enough. It's about five to one. And in normal life, you require about 20 positives to one. The couples who did well had 20 positive remarks, comments, facial expressions to one negative. And so there needs to be a lot of positivity injected in to make romantic love and connection grow. And Gottman says it's this thing of building fondness and admiration, looking for things that your partner does well and pointing them out highlighting it, saying thank you for that, I appreciate that. Goldman says it's small things often that make the difference. And it doesn't mean you will resolve every conflict. In fact, they've found 69% of differences, problems that couples have, never actually get fully resolved. And they don't need to because a growing friendship connection is more important and gets people through. You're not going to fix everything in every relationship and you don't need to. So being strategic about kindness, deliberately choosing to do it is what works. And it's not easy because, you know, males and females are very different. That's something I've, you know, getting married and counselling couples for a long time, seeing that males and females are so different, it makes it so complicated and tricky. It's like, oh, gee, this is almost too hard. We just don't understand each other. You know, things like, uh, you know, men like things, women like people. Women, uh, when women get lost, they ask for directions. Men don't get lost. <laughs> Getting lost would make a man look stupid. Sometimes we just turn, uh, choose the scenic route. Things like that. Differences. You know, in relationships, you've got to get back to doing the dating stuff. The dating stuff. It's funny how intuitive we are about the, the other gender and their needs when we're dating. And then people get married and it's like, mission accomplished, um, you know, now we'll sort of move on with more important things. But if couples don't get back to doing some of the dating stuff, it's going to be a real struggle. It's really, really important. And so, like, women need to understand that males don't tend to so much have the need to feel loved, but they more so have a need to feel respected than loved. Really, really important. And it's hard to understand the differences. Um, so for women, you know, don't always question a male's decision. Don't always say, why did you do it that way? Because what guys are all about is doing things well. You know, the deep inside the heart of a male is, am I good enough? Am I adequate? Am I capable? Am I competent? 
All that kind of thing matters more to a male than, than saying I love you, as much as that's important. But feeling adequate, it's a struggle. You know, males are always feeling like I'm just not cutting it. I'm struggling at work. You know, I'm not sure I'm good enough. I don't want to serve in, in church things because I'm just not sure I'm good enough. That's, that sense of adequacy is really, really important to males. And so what males need to understand about women is that women need to feel special. Women need to feel loved. My wife says to me every day, do you love me? She wants me to think of saying it first and I keep forgetting to say it first. It's like, oh, you know, and so sending little text messages and this is, these are generalisations. This is not, not every person, but these are the general principles. She wants to feel special. She likes it if I hold my hand. And in fact, researchers, a researcher named Shaunti Feldhorn, a Christian researcher on relationships, has found women tend to want things that show connection and, and to say that you're special to me, I love you. And they've found this in their research. The males tend to want to you know, you're, you're good at what you do, thank you for doing that. If I'm outside cutting a branch off the tree, I'm wondering if my wife is looking at me through the window and seeing how strong I am and how brave I am up on the third step. And uh, if she says, oh, the tree looks good, that makes me feel fantastic. But what makes her feel fantastic if I say, I love you, you look beautiful. If you had your hair done, that looks great, fantastic. All those kind of things, these are big differences. But you've got to get skilled in learning to do it. And it takes patience and it takes kindness to apply these principles so in all relationships it is the little things it doesn't have to be too complicated it's the little things that make a big difference and this is what jesus was really all about that expression of love and we'll, our last slide just focusing back to jesus on that last night washing the disciples feet you know love one another love one another as i have loved you this is the defining thing of following jesus it's what it's primarily about and if we inject that into not just romantic relationships but any relationship seriously it will go better and that's part of the cost of following jesus and it actually becomes a benefit let me pray and then i think we've got a song Heavenly Father, thank you. thank you for your word because it's all contained in there. And uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the kind of saviour that you are, for what you did for us on that cross and dying and rising again, that we may be forgiven and we can move into life with a sense of loving one another. That's exciting, Lord. Help us to do it. And for those, Lord, today who... Talking about relationships brings up pain for them, and that's often the case. I, I pray for them because it, it can be very difficult to think back or think what's not worked and think about loneliness and all that kind of thing. I, I pray particularly for those people that you would comfort their heart and uh, they would know that you are always there for them and always guiding us, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.